0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
1: Welcome back to the Believe in Blazers podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Brian Wheeler, your congenial host, and we are joined today by a uh, very, very qualified and esteemed expert on the NBA. He is the national writer for the NBA for the Washington Post. He is also the co-host of the Greatest of All Talk podcast, and so he knows of what he speaks and we'll ask him plenty about what's going on, not only with the Blazers, but the NBA right now, as we're into the conference finals. I'm speaking, of course, of a guy that many people in Portland came to know when uh, he was just starting out in this business. And now he's a big timer that has not forgotten his roots. We always like uh, a guy that, uh, is, uh, is, of that uh, is of that nature. That, of course, is our friend Ben Golliver. Ben, how are you, sir?
0: I'm doing very well. I don't know about this big timer stuff, Wheels. I don't <laughs> know about all that, but uh, it's great to chat with you. Um, You know, I was thinking back on the many years of listening to you on the Blazers broadcast and, of course, Sean Lee before you as well. I mean, formative experiences for me. And I remember many times at the Moda Center hearing a table get pounded, you know, three or four (laughs) rows behind me. Somebody's getting into some alliterations. I mean, there's nothing better than that. And, And that's what the NBA is all about, you know, traveling around these different cities during this postseason. Now that we've got fans back in the building. It's that passion that I'm seeing, and I, you know, I missed it for all the last year, so it's just great to to be here to, to talk to a basketball fan like yourself, someone who, who loves the sport and really cares about it, and um, also just that you know we're in a, the environment right now, the thick of it, the conference finals where I think the tensions are up and the fans are totally engaged is great.
1: Well, the lack of fans is something we're going to talk about in just a moment uh, because uh, you certainly... We're able to capsulize what that experience was like. And uh, we want to do so with Ben to start off our conversation. But as always, we want to tell you that uh, this uh, Believe in Blazers podcast uh, for the month of June, it's heating up, of course, with a ton of exciting sports action, as Ben was mentioning. And it's sponsored by Bet Online, where you can find all that action, basketball and hockey playoffs to baseball's marquee matchups, including prop bets and futures. Online has all of the latest odds, news, and information for your online sports betting needs. And if you visit their website today and use your mobile device to do so, you can join and receive your fifty percent off welcome bonus on your first deposit. So, before the next tip off, face off, or pitch, head on over to Bet Online and start playing today. Bet Online and Bet Online is your online sportsbook experts. So, for those uh, who have not uh, been uh, familiar with this, Ben has not only uh, done his usual great writing for the Washington Post, his usual great podcast work, but he has added on to his uh, credentials by uh, putting out his very first book. It was written about life in the bubble last season called Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season. Talk about um, your motivation for writing that book and how is it being received
0: so far? Well, the reception's been amazing. I mean, you just never know when you put something out, you know, who you're going to hear from. And I, I tell you what, I've heard from Kosovo and Mongolia and everywhere in between. I mean, there's basketball diehards out there who are just, uh, you know, I think really interested and almost magnetized to what I think is one of the most important seasons in NBA history. I mean, when you look back uh, on the pandemic, just, you know, shutting the season down in the middle of the year, it threw everything into question. You know, I'm sitting there as a writer saying, like, what am I even going to do? What if we're shut down for 18 months and there's no sports? How are they going to be able to go forward as a league? You've got billions of dollars at stake. You've got legacies, you know, LeBron James, Giannis, Kawhi Leonard, all chasing titles last year. And it's, it's just completely put on pause in the middle of the season. On top of that, you had the social justice activism, uh, the presidential campaign, and the public health questions, you know, all rolled into one. So, you know, to me, I didn't go down to Disney World planning to write a book. I went down to Disney World scared about my health, frankly. I just wanted to make sure I was going to be OK. And uh, after I got acclimated and I went through the process of the quarantine period and started writing some diary entries about, hey, this is what it's like down here there was just this immediate rush of interest from basketball fans who said, Oh, we want to know everything about this. So one thing led to another, I wound up, uh, you know, signing a contract to write a book about it. And it was uh, the bubble was the most rewarding and challenging experience of my professional career. I was there for 93 days, 92 nights, wheels. I could tell you it was hard. Uh, You know, a lot of the players talked about how challenging it was for me. I put on weight. I was sleeping terribly. Uh, my anxiety was up. I was feeling isolated from my parents and family 3,000 miles away. And I wanted to convey all of the challenges as well as recap just an incredible up-close uh, you know, perspective I had on these games. I went to every single playoff game from the second round on because you could just go from gym to gym and watch them. In a normal year, you could never do that logistically. And I was sitting courtside feeling like Jack Nicholson or Rihanna you know, with the best seats in the house. I could hear the trash talk. And so I try to bring all that color into the book. And I think, you know, the bubble was for the diehards. You know, I think you really had to be a hardcore basketball fan to watch those games on TV with no fans in the background and everything else. And I think my book really is for the diehards, too. You know, if you want to know every little last detail about what life was like down there at Disney World, hopefully I've got you covered.
1: Now, was it very uh, different writing a book uh, compared to the shorter form writing that uh, you had been used to uh, covering sports for a newspaper or, or for a website?
0: Well, absolutely. No question about it. And and doing it on a really tight timeline was incredibly stressful. You know, I I basically got home from the bubble in late October. I took one week off to just clear my head. And then I started writing for basically two months straight. I wrote seven days a week, uh, you know, five hours a night um, to put this thing together. Now, thankfully, I had done a lot of the reporting and the legwork while I was in the bubble. So that really helped me kind of put this project together. But it was absolutely a, a labor of love. You know, the writers always say, you know, oh, the book will take five years off your life. I mean, I, I hate to joke in that morbid fashion, but you know, by the end of it, I was so spent and, you know, so just, uh, you know, I kind of laid it all on the line. I, I felt like Jimmy Butler actually at the end of the NBA finals, remember when he was doubled over the, uh, the, the baseline, uh, uh board and just looking like he was completely gassed. Uh, that's how I felt when I was done writing it. But, uh, Again, it's been, you know, just incredible to hear from people, you know, all over the world who have gotten a chance to either read it or listen to the audio book or, you know, see the the online book or the the ebook and just share their favorite memories of again, just an incredibly important time in American history. I just think of of the kids who are like five years old now, you know, going to the libraries like I used to, you know, Beaverton City Library when I was a kid, go read every sports book they had. And just imagine, you know, 20, 30 years from now, they're gonna they're gonna think. Wait a minute, LeBron James won a title at Disney World during a pandemic? Like, how did that even happen? And so, you know, this book is is kind of the time capsule version for that.
1: Do you uh does that mean you probably won't be writing another book anytime soon because of all it all it takes <laughs> to, to put one together?
0: Yeah, I probably need a little time off, don't I? You know, I need a full offseason. You know, all these teams when they lose right. the playoffs you know, it's like, hey, we need to have a real offseason. Lakers are like, Oh, we're so glad to have a real offseason. Celtic said the same thing. You know, I'm right there with them. Uh, but it was a really fun, challenging, gratifying. And I'd be interested in doing another book at some point. But uh, I won't be rushing into it. You know, the, the other fun part about uh, Bubble Ball is just the, the kind of arc that we all went through within society, right? I mean, it was kind of the hopelessness, the despair in March when everything shut down. And we're all wondering, are we going to get to see anybody? You know, how is this going to pay off? And you start to get your hopes up a little bit. But you're still nervous. Once things start to open up last summer and you're just kind of curious, is this going to even work? You know, we got down there. We're getting tested every single day. We're going through four layers of security, the NBA, um, Disney World Security, uh, local police. We've got video surveillance all over us. We're adjusting to all these things in a pandemic that we're just not used to. And then the big payoff at the end, though, Wheels, was nobody got sick in the bubble. I mean, that was the legacy of the bubble. Zero people tested positive. And then on top of that, they succeeded in crowning a champion for the 74th straight year. They had The NBA has always crowned a champion every year since its existence. This was the one year where it was close and it might not happen, you know, right up there with the lockout years. And yet they were able to pull together and still do it. I think that was so important for the history books. And for me, it was so memorable because, you know, the Lakers win that title in an empty uh, arena. There's like 200 people there. And they're so desperate to find anybody to celebrate with. LeBron James started spraying me with champagne because there was nobody else around. So it was like, I can't have, I can never remember uh, another title celebration quite like that. Usually they've got their family, their friends, and you know they're going crazy in the locker room every, and everything else. But there was a collegiality to it. You know, it was this idea of, hey, look, we all went down to like study abroad at Disney World together. You know, we're all alumni of this uh, this bubble group and you know certainly my suit smelled terribly on the flight home i'll just say that i had it packed <laughs> away in like three layers of uh, of suitcases so nobody could smell that champagne
1: as you were chronicling the moments as they were happening was there any point that you, you thought to yourself especially when there were some delays and getting things done and and maybe some threats of what uh, was about to happen or maybe not happen that you uh, even even had a thought to cross your mind that hey we we may not be finishing this thing when all is said and done
0: Well, easily the the biggest moment there was the Milwaukee Bucks shutdown, right? And, you know, I went through that day in real detail in the book, almost like minute by minute, so you can really get a feel for what that was like. But even early on during that shutdown, I got the sense that there was a confidence from league officials that this was not going to completely blow up. Now, the players were very upset, and understandably so, but I actually had some people kind of come over and, and make a comment like, you know, this is going to be a great chapter for your book, you know, and I don't think they would have said that if they thought the story was ending the next day, you know what I mean? And there was so much money at stake. I mean, again, billions of dollars and the relationships with the television uh, companies that the players, once they got down there, they were kind of stuck. You know, there was that old saying Adam Silver liked to use, well, you're not forced to be here. You can leave at any time. And that was true for any individual player or any individual media member, but all the players couldn't leave simultaneously or otherwise the entire economics of the sport gets blown up, right? And so for me, I was, uh, you know, especially once we got down there and the health stuff protocols were working, I was confident, you know, after about two weeks that we were gonna be in good shape. Uh, there was that flare up, uh, you know, right after the, the Jacob Blake shooting where we didn't know are the players gonna wanna get out of here, but they actually put that thing back together pretty quickly. They only missed three days of games and, and that wasn't that long of a delay. And from then on, it was, uh, it was clear sailing and, you know, for the last six weeks or so of the experience, it was all basketball. I mean, that's really what it was about. You know, the, the off days dragged so long and so slow because there's nothing to do down there in that bubble environment. Um, and then the game days were just, you know, so tense and exciting because, you know, you're, you're right at the same stage we're at right now, which is the conference finals where, you know, legacies are made and, and, you know, historic moments happen every single year. So, um, uh, I was never truly scared. Uh, I'll put it that way. Well,
1: congratulations on 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 all that went into that project. I'm sure it was it was memorable for for many many reasons. And uh, I, I'm behind on my reading, but I have the book, and uh, I actually should send it to you to get it get it autographed. But uh, um, but I, I I do plan on reading it, especially once this season is over. And and I'm actually working on a book too, so I may I may call you for some for some finishing uh, touches what's, ideas.
0: What's your book? It's
1: called, uh, it's a great day. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, along the lines, to be honest, I wanted to write a book about, uh, the experiences of, uh, of covering a team for, for 21 seasons. And anytime I would do a talk show and we'd kind of pull back the curtain and say, Hey, uh, if you want to know what it was like to cover Rasheed Wallace, uh, you know, every day and, uh, J.R. Ryder and some fun stories from the road, uh, we'd always get all kinds of, uh, from, uh, questions from people that wanted that kind of information. Uh, But the Blazers weren't comfortable in having me write that kind of book. So it's really, uh, it has some Blazer items uh, uh, attached to it, such as uh, getting the Blazer job without formally interviewing for it, which I thought was a unique experience. Uh, The first season, replacing Sean's, uh, those uh, experiences. But it uh, has a lot more to do with uh, just kind of my personal story, uh, some family, uh, crazy family situations that came up, uh, coming in second four times for NBA play-by-play jobs before I got the Blazers position, uh, what that was all about, and uh, just kind of uh, personal struggles the last few years and uh, what that was about, but uh, uh, but you're just kind of trying to... Uh, I was hoping it would have a nice uh, uh, uplifting final chapter of getting back to having an NBA job, but uh, that uh, hasn't quite happened yet. Uh, I think the virus has kind of slowed uh, NBA openings a little bit, so I'm going to have to wait a little bit longer for that, but uh, but it's just not going to be war and peace in that or anything. It'll probably be a 125, 150 pages at the most, but, uh, but I think it'll be uh, something I, I never having written a book before people have asked what I expect. And I said, well, it'll probably sell anywhere from one and a million copies. I hope it's closer to the latter, but, uh, but I have no idea what to expect. Uh, and so we'll see, but I'm, I'm, hoping to have it out in the next couple of months. So we'll, we'll see how I certainly will send you one if you'd like it. So Oh, I would
0: love one. And I think the most important copy is the, is the one actually it's not the million because to me, that's what it's about. Write it for yourself. That's exactly how I felt with mine. That's what got me through the process, you know, doing it every single night. Like it's tough, it's hard. And, you know, sometimes you're just saying, should I even like open up or expose this part of my life to, to people? Or are they going right. to judge me? And you have all these kinds of questions and ultimately like, I thought the most rewarding part of it was like when I was done writing it, I was personally happy with it. I was proud with it. And so I was like, eh, who cares what the critics <laughs> say, right? Like who cares how many books it sells if I liked it and I'm pretty hard on myself, and I'm sure you're, you're a perfectionist too, yeah. probably really hard on yourself as well. If you can make it so you like it, that's all that matters. That's how I That's it. great
1: advice. That's great advice. Cause I, I, there's been many days I've said, I, you know, who's going to really care about this aspect of uh, something that happened to me, you know, a long time ago in my life. But uh, somebody said, ah, eh, you know, you might be surprised and maybe it's, maybe it's something that's uh, inspirational for some person or just interesting for somebody else or, you know, and, and you got to kind of look at it in, in, uh, in a, uh, in a final uh, compiled project, as opposed to maybe just individual items that uh, compose all that. So, so uh, yeah, again, never having done a book before, I, I don't really know what to expect, but, uh, but uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, I think it'll be, uh, it'll be available on Amazon and a few other places that the people can get their books. And so, uh, so we'll, we'll, see how it, we'll see how it goes, but, uh, but I, I I'm in the, I'd say two thirds done. So it's getting in the, uh, in the final stages and hopefully it'll be uh, ready sometime, sometime soon. But uh, so, um, so let's, uh, let's, let's get, let's get back to kind of current uh, elements now uh, as we look toward uh, uh, the conference finals. And we want to talk about that as well. But, uh, but as we speak, seven uh, teams currently have head coaching openings at the NBA, including of course the Blazers. So let me ask you, first of all, as you talk to people around the league, is the Blazers head coaching position uh, considered to be a well-respected and and highly thought of job opportunity.
0: Well, I certainly I don't think it's you know like number one, for example. I think a lot of people look at the Boston job and they say, well, you've got this prestige organization. They've had all this steadiness in terms of having Stevens as a coach for a long time. They've had they had Danny Ainge as their president for years and years and years. You've got really, you know, pretty deep pocketed ownership group that wants to have contenders and you've got two young stars with Tatum and Brown. I think a lot of people circle that Boston job and say, well, you know, that, that one, you know, that job, first of all, doesn't come open very often. And second of all, you know, it's, it's one of the bigger, uh, you know, uh, bigger positions at that spot. And, and certainly it was when they hired Brad, I mean, that was kind of an outside the, uh, box hire when they grabbed him and it worked out quite well. And I think a lot of people respect and like Brad Stevens and the fact that he's going to be the president is actually a big, uh, selling spot for that position, too. But when you compare, I think, Portland to, say, Indiana, Orlando, some of these other jobs, New Orleans, you know, people will focus on, hey, we've got this young star to build around with Zion or in Dallas. You've got this young star to build around a Luca. From a coaching perspective, you'd rather have Damian Lillard, who already knows exactly who he is and is already an all-NBA-level second-team player, and, you know, you could argue first-team player, and you can just plug and play and go if you're that coach as opposed to needing to take on a lot of the developmental work that goes with coaching some of these younger players. Now it can work out great for you. Take Terry Stotts, for example, when he came into Portland, he had to develop Lillard. They developed right on course. It worked great. And he has seven or eight very fruitful years and he stays employed. And it winds up being a great job for him and a great fit personality wise as well. But that's not how it always goes. You know, sometimes you get you know, look at Stan Van Gundy. He had the same situation. Oh, you've got Zion, you've got Ingram, you've got Lonzo ball. Well, you know, he, he only lasted about six months. That's a, that's a tough spot to be in because there's going to be pressure. So uh, to me, I think Portland is one of the top tier jobs that's open right now among the seven. And it's hard to keep track of them all because there's been so many yeah. guys to kind of get fired and, and resigned here recently. But, you know, certainly it's uh, to me, I would put it above Indiana because of Lillard's presence. Right. Um, and I would also say fan base matters, right. you want to have an invest in fan base. And so for some of these organizations that have been cycling coaches a lot. I would put Orlando in that mix. It's really hard to keep your fan base invested when you go through five different coaches probably in the last 10 years. I mean, they've really switched things up a lot down there. And so from Portland, it's the stability, it's the engagement, and it's the superstar presence of Lillard that makes it attractive.
1: Gil O'Shea said right after the season that uh, he expected the team to be looking at 20 to 25 head coaching candidates. Uh, There now have been rumblings that maybe a second-round of interviews is being conducted and some names have been mentioned as maybe making it to that second round. Uh, Mike D'Antoni, we've seen Becky Hammond's name mentioned as well as uh, maybe making it to the uh, to the second round uh, of interviews and probably some that uh, haven't been necessarily made public. Uh, You've seen the names. uh, Is there is there a name or names that you figure to emerge as maybe the best candidates when all is said and done?
0: Well, when he said the whole 20 or 25 names thing, I just thought he had a whole bunch of different nicknames for Chauncey Billups. You know, like 24 of those (laughs) guys. (laughs) Look, if it's not Chauncey Billups, personally, I will be really surprised. I mean, I think people understand the respect and the the direct relationship that Neil has had with Chauncey for years and years and years going back to the Clippers days. Um, You know, I I think that one aspect to not overlook in Portland's search, but also in the NBA searches at large, a lot of prominent players have said, we want to see more African-American faces in coaching positions and in front offices. Basically, enough is enough. It's not fair that there's so few black coaches, so few black GMs when the number of players is predominant uh, You know, black players in the league. And so uh, I think that that's going to be a factor for a number of these organizations as they're weighing which direction to go. And I and I think, um, you know, Lillard's been very outspoken on social justice issues. And I imagine that's something that's going to matter to him as well. And not that he gets to just choose the coach, but he is going to have some influence here as being such a big time star player and and having been in Portland for so long. Um, I would be surprised if it wasn't Chauncey Billups. You know, I think that he checks a lot of boxes for Portland. Very intelligent, uh, you know, long, well-respected, you know, Hall of Fame level guy within the league. Uh, You know, he's got the point guard mentality. He can relate to Lillard. I think he's a pretty friendly, affable guy. I think that matters in Portland. I never really saw the Jason Kidd fit, to be honest, because, you know, he's he's a different personality. He's a little prickly. You know, He's not going to want to, uh, you know, go kiss babies and shake hands, you know, on the on the Broadway bridge. You know, it's not really going to be Jason Kidd, whereas I think that's a little bit more about Chauncey. And then the, the relationship with Neil, I think, is huge, too, because. This is Neil's first coaching change since he's been the the president. And a lot of times you get to have a lot of autonomy in that situation. Um, you know, He kind of uh, waited and waited to make that move, you know, in past years where maybe there were some rumors around Terry. And usually, you know, once you've decided it's uh, time, you get to pick your guy. And, and I think that that would probably be his leader in the clubhouse. But we'll wait to see how it plays out. I saw the report about Becky Hammond. That's fascinating. And I would personally not be surprised at all if this is the offseason that, the NBA has its first woman head coach. Uh, I think there's a number of situations, uh, whether it's the Washington wizards, new Orleans, Pelicans, uh, Orlando magic. I mean, there's just a Portland, there's a number of different spots where you could say, Hey, um, they might be interested in, in being the ones to kind of, uh, you know, break that barrier and we'll see if it happens.
1: One of the names that I didn't see mentioned uh, not only for the Blazers position, but I really haven't seen his name mentioned for any of the other openings as well. And I'm curious, Maybe you know why, and maybe it's his decision uh, to not be um, considered for these openings. Maybe uh, there's something that uh, has come up as just something holding him back. But he was a head coach for quite a few years in the NBA. I certainly respect his knowledge of uh, basketball. It seems like he does great work with uh, some of the uh, younger uh, USA basketball teams that he's had a chance to coach. But I just don't see Jeff Van Gundy's name prominently mentioned for openings. Is there any reason that you can point to as to maybe why?
0: Uh, well, yeah, he always just gets kind of floated and rumored. And then, you know, he doesn't really seem like he, he goes down the interview process or maybe he's found the right spot. I think, first of all, it's a really good job to be the ESPN color commentator. You know, I mean, he's their prestige guy. He, it's I'm sure he's getting paid very well and, you know, living a really good uh, lifestyle. I also think it's important. This isn't necessarily just about him, but just in general. I think you're going to see a lot of assistants hired this year because of cost cutting, because of the pandemic. You know, if we look back at some of these decisions, Oklahoma City moving on from Billy Donovan last year, Houston moving on from Mike D'Antoni, Washington moving on from Scott Brooks, all three of those guys were making really good money. You know, they're kind of getting paid on the uh, the old coaching scale. You know, some of these guys are making like $7 million a year, right? Now you look at what you can pay an assistant coach who's, you know, getting hired for the first time as a head coach, maybe that guy's going to make two or two and a half million a year. That's huge cost savings for an organization. And if you're not a contender at this point, if you're a rebuilding organization, um, you're not going to be interested in paying top dollar. And I think if personally, if I was in Jeff Van Gundy's shoes and I had kind of like, you know, I was the big star at ESPN and I had my say of any game I wanted to call. And I was the the A-list crew and everything else. I would take a lot of money for me to want to leave that, to go to an NBA job. And I think, at the financial part of the NBA is still driving a lot of these decisions right now. And um, that's why I do think you're gonna see, you know, even a guy like Ime Udoka, uh, you know, a former Portland Trailblazer and, and local legend there in, in Portland, I could easily see him getting hired this year as a first-time head coach, in part because you know, the just the going rate for, for people in that spot is a little bit less than a, a proven coach, like say a Rick Carlisle. You know, he's gonna come with a certain expectation, you know, given his long track record of success. So uh, you know, just that's one thing to keep an eye on as you break down these jobs.
1: Somebody that would would cost some money, not only for his uh, salary, but maybe for just having him become available in the last couple of weeks. There have been some rumors anyway uh, floating around that the Blazers possibly had some interest in trying to coax Eric Spolstra away from Miami. Uh, do you think there was anything to that story? Is it totally dead? Um, is there any is there any inkling that Miami would even entertain the thought of letting Spolstra get away?
0: That one's hard for me to see, um, you know, just observing Spolster in the bubble. That guy seemed really happy and really comfortable and kind of in his element. And obviously his relationship with Pat Riley goes back a long way um, and he's had great uh, a level of control and influence, uh, you know, because of that relationship. You know, this is not a situation where the front office makes the decisions and just throws the players on the coach. Right. I mean, these guys are really working in tandem to kind of build the roster and, you know, life's pretty good down there in Miami. They got some incredible basketball facilities. The, uh, you know, the, the arenas right there on the water, you know, that's, I think that's a pretty plumb job and I'd have a hard time seeing Spolster leave that, um, you know, really for any reason. You know, the other thing I would say, you know, going back to Van Gundy real quick, I mean, we saw this with his brother, Stan Van Gundy in New Orleans, there was a generation gap, you know, I think you've got some, when you've got younger teams The idea used to be, well, bring in a little bit of, you know, a dictator style coach, a guy who's really going to get, you know, like Sarge. Remember the Nate McMillan Sarge stuff? That's the kind of coach you need to coach up a young team. that worked great uh, with Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge. Those guys were very coachable, open to, uh, you know, having somebody kind of get in their ear. You look at some of these younger players, and I'm talking about under 25-year-old players, especially stars they're not accustomed to that. You know, that's not the, the mentality right now in AAU basketball or even college basketball. It's much more touchy feely, try to get guys in their comfort zones and let them do their thing. And that was one of the reasons why, uh, you know, Stan Van Gundy is out in New Orleans. Yeah, you know, He just didn't find a way to connect to the stars. You know, Brandon Ingram lollygagged through the entire season. I mean, he was not playing hard at all this season. And that's like your first goal as a coach, especially if you want to be a defensive-minded coach, is to get your players, you know, locked in and playing hard on both ends. And so, I think that could hold uh, Jeff Van Gundy back as well. I mean, he's not afraid to speak his mind. We all know that from the broadcast. He's an incredible basketball intellect. But I, I do kind of wonder if we're seeing a little bit of a youth movement right now, um, you know, in the NBA with some new, fresh-faced stars, but also maybe some younger coaches. You know, we saw it with Luca and Rick Carlisle. A little bit of a, a generation gap there as well, where. You know, Carlisle's done things his way for decades, and Luke is saying, "Well, I want to know when we're calling timeout. I don't like it. You call this timeout at this particular moment. You know, you should not take me out of the game if I'm in foul trouble. I just want to keep playing." And you know, in the modern NBA, if there's a power struggle between the stars and the coaches, the stars almost always win.
1: Is that maybe the type of coach that uh, possibly ends up on uh, on a staff for a unproven head coach? Like if Chauncey Billups were to get the Blazer job. Maybe on his staff, he brings in a, a veteran uh, head coach that uh, possibly isn't interested in being a head coach anymore, or maybe just is going through a phase where he doesn't have an opportunity. But he becomes kind of the uh, uh, the sage voice that uh, that helps the the young, uh, never before been head coach kind of get through uh, get through the initial stages of uh, of being the the number one guy.
0: Totally. I mean, we saw that in Atlanta with Lloyd Pierce and Nate McMillan, and you know, we, we saw how that played out. They decided, hey, maybe we should go for the more experienced guy and turn their whole season around. Um, we also saw that in Brooklyn, right, with Steve Nash gets in there and it says, well, look, this is my first time doing it. I better get a guy like Mike D'Antoni as uh, you know, kind of the the overseer to kind of help things out and, and make sure things you know work out on the bench uh, you know pretty well. That's a common way uh, to approach it. And again, it's you know if you're paying Mike D'Antoni as an assistant, you're paying him a lot less than you were as the head coach. And I think that again, it goes back to some of the finances uh, that we were talking about earlier.
1: So Dallas was the team that became the seventh uh, uh, team to have a head coach opening. Uh, Rick Carlisle resigning one day after GM Donnie Nelson was effectively fired by all accounts by Mark Cuban. Uh, they had they had such stability with their front office and. And, uh, and, and their head coach on the bench for, for so long. Uh, how did things uh, deteriorate so, so rapidly uh, for, for that situation?
0: Well, I mean, Dallas has had a lot of drama over these last couple of years. You know, Mark Cuban came in and really shook up the league with some forward-thinking approaches to ownership. You know, he, like, it really made their practice facility nice. He made their locker rooms nice. He got really aggressive in terms of recruiting free agents, something that we really haven't seen a lot of owners do. He got really into technology as well and, and bringing that in. But um, these last couple of years, I mean, they had you know, some sexual harassment uh, stories going on on their business side. And then now you're seeing, uh, I think, some real frustration between Luca and you know, how they're building that cast around him. And then a power struggle between you know, some of Cuban's younger advisors, more um, analytics minded advisors and the older school approach of, the, of Donnie Nelson. And to me, I just, you know, I think that it's time to step back and say, you know, this has been a tough 10 years for Dallas. We have this viewpoint of this reputation of Mark Cuban being this cutting edge owner, uh, you know, who's, you know, just will do anything to win. And they've really struggled. It's been a long series of misses. If they hadn't landed Luca in that draft, where would they be? I mean, they, they'd be probably one of the worst teams in the Western conference right now. So um, I think that there's a lot of different pressure points there, but uh, you know, I, it will be fascinating to see which direction they go with both searches, right? Because I think Cuban's first inclination is going to be to promote from within, you know. So maybe it's Mike Finley or Michael Finley, former Mavericks player and, and front office executive who takes over the front office. And then maybe they look at one of their assistant coaches, guys who are younger and more friendly with Luca and, you know, decide, hey, do we promote those guys into the head coaching spot? If that's the direction they go and you've had this weird, I don't want to call it a toxic culture, but a challenging culture there these last couple of years, um, that's not exactly new blood. It's not exactly new um, ideas. It's, it's a little bit just, you know, more of the same uh, to a certain degree. And I don't know how well that would work. I think Cuban's been his own worst enemy in a lot of this stuff, too. I think he just really, really, really wanted a, a star to put alongside Luca, So he was willing to make that Chris for Porzingis trade. Um, you know, he struck out in free agency so often, I think that trade, you know, kind of uh, came back to bite them a little bit. And also, you know, a, a lot of times when these reports come out about the dysfunction uh, in his organization, he comes out and just flat out denies everything and basically lies about it. And then, you know, the, the truth comes out and, you know, he, he doesn't wind up looking very good. And, and I just wonder if, if there's a perception issue right now in, in Dallas as well. But the good news for them You're going to sign Luka to the max. He's going to take the 200 million. He's going to be one of the top three or four players in the league next year. He almost beat the Clippers single-handedly this year. You only have to make a couple moves around the margins to give him a little bit more help, and you're going to win a playoff series next season. So I don't think it's the the most challenging job, even if the circumstances right now um, are pretty messy.
1: Speaking of opportunities to improve, the Blazers presently have no draft choices this year. Uh, They won't have any serious free agent uh, dollars to spend. So do you see players on their current roster that would, would be attractive trade pieces to uh, uh, to improve the uh, talent that way?
0: I was surprised to hear Neil O'Shea at the end of his, press, uh, his season press conference say that, like, you know, we've got four of our starters basically saying these guys are coming back. Um, that's not the message that I would have put forward. I mean, maybe he's bluffing. That's always possible. But. You know, I think that pretty much anyone besides Damian Lillard should be viewed as a trade piece right now. I don't see anybody else on that roster. To me, that's untouchable. A lot of their younger pieces who sometimes had gotten thrown into like, oh, you know, you can't trade him. Uh, You know, he's got so much potential. Well, where's that gotten you with Zach Collins or Anthony Simons? I mean, these guys, those are very touchable pieces to me. Um, I think the big one that everyone's going to circle would be C.J., Uh, You know, just because they've run the Damon C.J. backcourt over and over and over again and just kind of keep hitting walls in the postseason. I can understand the arguments for trading C.J., but I'm not sure he has the strongest trade market out there, in part because uh, of his his size. You know, he's not the biggest two guard. Uh, He's not the best defensive two guard. And, you know, he's never really run an offense himself. And so I think you'd have to be a team that's really lacking in offensive weapons to view him as your number one option. And he's got a really big contract, you know, and so all those things, I think, just diminish his trade value a little bit. Um, You know, you mentioned, you know, possibly like a a CJ McCollum for Ben Simmons deal. If I'm Portland, I don't really have any interest in that. You know, Lillard's got enough on his plate. Why does he have to rehabilitate Ben Simmons's confidence? Right. When you go into the playoffs, you want guys who are ready to go to war, who know exactly who they are and are going to do their job. And that's not Ben Simmons right now. It's completely mental. He's got the yips. You know, I was at game seven in Philadelphia when he's passing up the dunk and getting booed by the home crowd. It's so obvious that he needs to change the scenery. But just because he gets traded, isn't going to magically bring him back and be this uh, you know amazing all around player. People thought he was going to be when he was that number one pick. The guy can't shoot. He's afraid to shoot. He doesn't want to go to the free throw line. He doesn't want to take contact. Those are gigantic problems in the playoffs. This Atlanta Hawks team is good, but they're not great. Philly should have won that series and they would have won that series if Ben Simmons had played a little bit better. And I think if you're Portland in the tougher Western conference where every single first round series is a dogfight, you got to be thinking long and hard before you trade for Ben Simmons.
1: We surprised at all at Yusuf of Nurkic's comments after the final uh, game for the Blazers, basically saying that uh, he can do more for this team, kind of intimating that he wasn't being used correctly. He was uninformed about what his contract situation was almost Uh, feeling that uh, he would decide whether he was going to come back or not, not realizing that the Blazers have control over uh, the next year of his contract. And it seems to be every indication they're going to, uh, to pick up the, the option on his, on his deal. Uh, But uh, he didn't sound like a very happy guy. Um, You know, it's possible. Of course you catch him right on the heels of a, of a season ending, but uh, by the same token, it seemed like uh, somebody who feels like he's being underutilized. I don't know if a new coach will change that, but, uh, I think there could also be some arguments from the other side saying that maybe uh, he's uh, underproduced in some respects, too. So so uh, I I don't know what's the right answer, maybe a little of both. But uh, he didn't seem like a happy camper at the end of the season. Uh, Maybe, again, that's something that can be easily repaired with a new coach and a new approach to things. But he clearly wants to have more responsibility for this team, at least if uh, if you go by his
0: approach to everything. Well, a lot of times in the NBA, that's code, right? I'm, uh, I'm getting uh, not enough touches. Also, means I'm not getting enough money, you know. And you look at his last contract; it was a very team-friendly contract. I remember a lot of people when he signed it at the time, and he had, I believe, uh, an agent who was not one of the major agents. I know he's changed now to Clutch Sports. Uh, you know, to me, he gave the Blazers a big-time discount. And when he's been healthy, he's really overperformed his contract from a production standpoint. And there's probably a little bit of that of you are looking around and seeing how much other guys are getting paid. And you're saying, wait a minute here, you know, I'm uh, not that he's a max level player, but he's certainly, uh, I think, worth more, especially when healthy than he's been uh, getting here these last couple of years. Um, You know, I think that there's probably going to be some some positioning on behalf of his agents heading into his next contract to make sure that this next one takes care of him, so to speak, you know, compared to that last one. And that could be a, a cause of some of these comments just sort of almost putting Portland on notice of like, look, make sure I'm a big part of this team next year so that I can be in a situation to really have a big contract year push. Otherwise like send me somewhere that uh, is going to, you know, give me that kind of an opportunity. That's how I read those comments personally, but I agree with you. He's also just a very emotional player, hates to lose, wears his heart on his sleeve. You know, that's why people love him during the NERC fever era, right. Is because it's just, uh, you know, there's, there's no filter between, you know, his, his passion for the sport and, Um, and the fan base. So, uh, you know, to me, they'd be stuck without him, right? Portland really needs him. So he's going to be back. um, In my opinion, he's going to have a large role. And it's going to be a major challenge for that next head coach is make sure you're getting the absolute most out of Nurkic. And then of course, make sure you can keep him healthy. Because, you know, as as upset as Nurkic wants to be at some of this stuff, he's missed a lot of time, you know, you go back and Look at what last three seasons he's missed big chunks basically every single time. And that makes it difficult uh, to sustain success during the regular season as a team and also to convince a front office and ownership group that you're worth a big investment. A
1: couple of final thoughts from you uh, as we uh, record this. We're into the conference finals. Uh, Has there been anything surprising in the playoffs uh, to you uh, up to this point?
0: Well, just a number of injuries. You know, I've been in in person at some of these games. I'm wondering if I'm the guy who's jinxing it. Like, I've got a voodoo (laughs) doll in my pocket or something. Like, I was there for the Anthony Davis injury, there for the Kyrie Irving injury. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I think that uh, I have been impressed by the teams that are maybe not superstar dominated. They're more balanced teams being the ones to kind of step up and take advantage when a lot of these star players go down. Phoenix is a great example of that. Just an incredibly well-balanced starting five. They've got the two all-stars in the backcourt, and Aiton's starting to look like a, a rising all-star himself um, at the center spot. But they've done it as a collective, right? It's all about that unselfish ball movement. Uh, you know, team basketball. Same thing for the Clippers. They lose Kawhi Leonard. They immediately shift into this uh, this strategy of keep the ball moving, jack a lot of three pointers, go small. We're going to do this together as a team. It's not just about Paul George trying to put everybody on his back. I love to see that stuff because usually in the playoffs, superstars win, you know, almost every single year. Right. It's almost LeBron, Katie or Scott. Every year you just pencil it in. This year, those guys have been out and it's really been a collective. Same thing for Milwaukee. I really enjoyed how they uh, handled Brooklyn in that series. It was just very steady, incredible defensive effort. Giannis was great and didn't get nearly enough credit, but he had a lot of help, too. I mean, you know, there's big key plays by all of their starters, P.J. Tucker, Brooke Lopez, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday down the stretch of that game seven to bring that win home. And then, of course, Atlanta, too. You know, they're the, the perfect example of they have no all-stars this year, no all-NBA guys. And yet, you know, they're in the Eastern Conference Finals and they they knocked out Philly because they hung together, played really hard. And then even if they were down 20 points, never gave up. And so. That, to me, has been kind of the theme of this year. Look, there's a lot of injuries, but there's a lot of these balanced teams stepping up and doing it together. And I think that's an important basketball virtue. You know, I mean, we always love those early 90s Blazers teams, right? Because everybody knows the entire starting five. All five of those guys mattered. Five fingers made a fist. You know, Clyde was the star, but he had a lot of help. And uh, that's how basketball should be played.
1: And so for those fans who uh, don't like necessarily seeing the same old uh, names, competing for an NBA championship well they're probably happy with the four that are in the conference finals because uh, in all likelihood we're going to have a fresh face potentially it's never won an NBA championship before uh when uh, we get to uh, the conclusion of the playoffs so uh, we've got the conference finals going who do you anticipate will be in the NBA finals and who do you think will eventually take home the trophy
0: I think my pick right now is going to be Milwaukee over Phoenix in the finals. Um, I was, like I said, really impressed by how Milwaukee handled things against Brooklyn. That series felt like the finals. I I covered games uh, three through seven. And I mean, there were so many twists and turns with the injuries, but also just with every time the series would change venue, the momentum would shift just like in the NBA finals. And so the fact that they were the last team standing, they've got pretty good health. And I think they've got the best player left in the field right now with Giannis. Uh, you know, to me, that gives them the edge. They're going to have home court against Atlanta. And I think there's a chance they take care of Atlanta pretty quickly. You know, Atlanta's just a little bit wounded. DeAndre Hunter's out. Uh, uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich has kind of been banged up. Even Trey's been dealing with a shoulder injury. And I think it could just be one of those situations where, like, you know, they're just happy to be here and Milwaukee's ready to to take care of business and get over the hump after a couple of playoff disappointments in the years past. But Phoenix has been great. I mean, so consistent, even without Chris Paul, they played really, really strong basketball. They've had a bunch of breaks. You know, they get the Lakers without AD. They get the nuggets without Jamal Murray. They get the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard, but you know, luck is a big part of this thing and they've taken full advantage and they've been so well coached by Monty Williams, you know, former blazer assistant who just found a perfect home down there in Phoenix. So I think, you know, Milwaukee, uh, Phoenix could shape up to be a really fun finals if that's the direction that it goes. And uh, it's a, certainly a finals I never would have predicted in a million years, you know, before the playoffs started.
1: No, and that's part of the fun, I think. So, well, uh, we certainly have had fun uh, talking to you today, getting so many great insights from you. Before we let you go, tell everybody one more time how to follow you on Twitter, how to get your book and how to follow your podcast as well.
0: Yeah. So I'm uh, on Twitter at Ben Goliver. Um, you know, you can follow all my writing at the Washington post.com slash sports. Um, the podcast is called greatest of all talk. So that's GreatestofAllTalk.com. of all And uh, the book is called bubble ball and you can find it Amazon Barnes and Noble Powell's for your local Portland listeners, really anywhere you get books, you'll be able to find it. And there's the audio book as well on audible.
1: When will Powell's be flying you in for a, uh, for a personally autographed, uh, uh, you know, day, day where they, where you can get a, a book, uh, you know, in person from you and autographed as well
0: well hopefully we can do that one day that was the one downside about getting this book out as quickly as we did is that you know we're still playing by the pandemic rules and you know for me i didn't feel comfortable like doing like a public uh, event because i just didn't want to be a part of the problem you know in, in any situation like that but it's been very cool kind of traveling around the country every city i go to during these playoffs i go find a local bookstore and every time it's in there man i'll get, it, tell you what it puts a huge smile on my face it's like great feeling of accomplishment and um, you know, I had a number of people send me videos and pictures from Powell's, and, you know, they did it right. You know, they, uh, I'm from Beaverton, and they have me, uh, you know, up front, uh, right by the entrance, <laughs> and I, I couldn't ask them for anything more. I mean, I was so grateful. You know, I grew up going to Powell's, you know, not every weekend, but I went to Powell's a lot. You know, I spent a lot of hours um, in those stacks, you know, reading the history books and the, the military books they got there and some of the science books, and of course, all the sports books. So, just to kind of be in that mix. It's, it's so cool. And, um, you know, one day, you know, probably in the not too distant future, you're going to be there yourself.
1: Well, we'll see. We'll see. But it's only right that Beaverton's own Ben Golliver is featured so prominently at Paul's and, uh, gosh, congratulations on all the success. I know everybody, uh, here in, in Portland and in Oregon in general, so happy with uh, your success. And I think everybody kind of uh, feels a, a small part of it, uh, kind of nursing you through those early years and seeing, uh, you grow up to be the great uh, success that you are, and, and it's so well respected, and uh, and deservedly so. And uh, I thank you for taking the time to be a, a small part of uh, of our uh, of our uh, little uh, little podcast here. And uh, certainly, I know as soon as I kind of got the word out that you were going to be uh, be a guest, people said, "Well, make sure you get it, and you get every question that you can possibly think of asked." And I think we accomplished that, and uh, got some great insight from you. And we'll uh, we'll kind of uh, check check them off as they go these various events, uh, but. Chelsea Billups is Blazers head coach. We got that one. That's, I think, the one that people were most interested in. But uh, we'll see how the NBA Finals go as well. Phoenix and Milwaukee, we'll look for that as well. And uh, certainly looking for the continued success of your book and future books to come when the time is right as well. But, uh, Ben, thanks again for the time. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, visiting with you again soon. Have a great uh, rest of the postseason. And uh, try to get some rest in the offseason, too.
0: I'm trying, Will. Tokyo's next, so it oh, like that's no right. Rest. You're not going to get much rest no, right away. No, no rest for the weary. But it, the good news is, we got some players joining us in Tokyo. You that's know, right. We got Kevin Durant. We got a couple other names looking like they're going to be on that team. Damian Lillard. I should have said uh, first, yeah. probably even before KD. So hopefully, that will make for uh, another fun experience. But uh, thanks so much for having me, Wheels. It's great to hear your voice. Great to see your face, and hopefully, we can talk soon.
1: Absolutely. Ben Golliver uh, joining us here on this edition of the Believe in Blazers podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. As events warrant and certainly uh, news changing by the day, we'll bring you the next edition of the podcast when we have some uh, big news to uh, bring to you and some big newsmakers like Ben to be able to talk to. Our podcast, as always, brought to you by Bet Online, your online sports book experts. I'm Brian Wheeler. We'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you for listening to Believe.